Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Come to democracynow.org on November 8th to watch Democracy Now!'s three-hour midterm election night special. We'll be covering the key congressional races, which will determine the balance of power in Congress. Plus, we'll look at gubernatorial races and ballot initiatives around the country. Join us to hear the voices of activists, analysts, grassroots leaders discussing how the movements on the ground will go forward following these critical midterm elections. You can watch online at democracynow.org starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday, November 8th. From New York, this is Democracy Now! As Ukraine works to restore water and power to its citizens, the United States remains committed to the victory of a sovereign and independent Ukraine. And we are working to deliver air defense systems so Ukraine can continue to repel these attacks. As the Biden administration vows more military aid for Ukraine, we host a debate on the U.S. response to the war and U.S. policy toward Russia. We'll speak with Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst who specialized in the Soviet Union, as well as former Bernie Sanders advisor Matt Duss. He's a Ukrainian-American, a fellow now at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Plus, with the midterm elections just days away, we talked to Mary Kay Henry, president of SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. Working people are taking action and speaking out and demanding a voice on the job and in our democracy, on the job through a union and in our democracy through the ballot box. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russia's announced it's rejoining a deal allowing for grain shipments from Ukraine's ports. This comes just four days after Russia withdrew from the deal, sparking fears it could worsen the global hunger crisis. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said the renewed deal would prioritize grain shipments to Somalia, Djibouti, Sudan and other African nations. Russia said it rejoined the deal after Ukraine agreed not to use the sea corridor to attack Russian forces. Water and power have been restored to much of Kyiv following a series of Russian attacks on Ukraine's infrastructure, but scheduled blackouts are ongoing due to a shortage of electricity. Meanwhile, Russia's expanded a mandatory evacuation order for Ukrainians living in parts of occupied Kherson, ahead of what's expected to be a major battle. In other news about the Ukraine war, the founder of one of Russia's largest banks has given up his Russian citizenship. In a statement on Instagram, the billionaire Oleg Tinkov called Russia a fascist country and denounced it for, quote, killing innocent people daily, unquote. In news from Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu appears on the cusp of becoming Israel's prime minister again, 16 months after being ousted from office. Exit polls in the Israeli election suggest Netanyahu's Likud party and its far-right allies gained enough votes to form a parliamentary majority. If Netanyahu succeeds, a key member of his government will likely be Itamar Ben-Gvir, an ultra-nationalist lawmaker who openly supports the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. In 2007, he was convicted of incitement to racism and supporting a terrorist organization. Netanyahu served as 
as prime minister from 1996 to 99, then again from 2009 to 2021. He's currently on trial for corruption. In Brazil, defeated far-right President Bolsonaro made his first public statements Tuesday, two days after he lost the presidential election to the leftist former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro neither conceded nor contested the election results. But after he spoke, his chief of staff said the transition to a new administration would start. Bolsonaro also urges supporters to stop disruptive protests, though many continued to block streets and major highways on Tuesday night. South Korea is accusing North Korea of firing a missile into South Korean waters for the first time since the nations were divided in the 1950s. This came as North Korea launched a total of at least 23 missiles into the sea today. South Korea responded by firing three missiles into waters off North Korea. This all came as the United States and South Korea were carrying out war exercises involving hundreds of warplanes and thousands of troops. On Tuesday, North Korea warned the U.S. and South Korea would pay, quote, the most horrible price in history, unquote, if the war games continue. In Arizona, a federal judge imposed a restraining order on members on the far-right Trump-supporting group Clean Elections USA including barring the open carry of firearms and wearing of body armor close to ballot boxes. The move comes as armed individuals have been seen intimidating voters and taking photos or videos at ballot drop boxes and polling sites. The Justice Department said Tuesday that, quote, vigilante ballot security efforts in Arizona likely violate the Voting Rights Act. In more voting news, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court sided with Republicans Tuesday and ruled mail-in ballots without a written date on their outer envelope could not be counted. The ACLU of Pennsylvania condemned the decision, saying, quote, no one should be disenfranchised for an irrelevant technicality, unquote. Pennsylvania is home to two closely watched races, the Senate race between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz, and the Pennsylvania gubernatorial race between the state's Democratic Attorney General Josh Shapiro and the right-wing state senator Doug Mastriano, a 2020 election denier who charted buses to the insurrection January 6, 2021. In Michigan, Republican Congressmember Liz Cheney campaigned for incumbent Democratic Congressmember Alyssa Slotkin on Tuesday. Cheney told the crowd she's never stumped for a Democrat before, but that, quote, we all must stand and defend the republic, unquote. Earlier yesterday, Cheney said in an interview she supported Ohio Democrat Tim Ryan in a Senate race against Trump-supporting J.D. Vance. Cheney was largely shunned from the Republican Party after coming out against Trump voting to impeach him and taking part in the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. She lost her August primary against the Trump-backed Harriet Hageman. Meanwhile, President Biden traveled to Florida yesterday and warned voters Republicans would cut Medicare and Social Security if they win the elections. Chief Justice John Roberts temporarily blocked the Treasury Department from handing over Donald Trump's tax records to the House Ways and Means Committee. The House committee has until November 10th to respond to Trump's latest appeal. If Republicans take the House of Representatives in the midterms, it's likely the demand for records will expire and will not be further pursued once the new Congress is seated. Also Tuesday, the Supreme Court refused to block a Georgia grand jury subpoena for Senator Lindsey Graham to testify about Trump's efforts to over 
overturn the 2020 presidential elections. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis says Graham called Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger after the election and asked about, quote, reexamining certain absentee ballots to explore the possibility of a more favorable outcome for former President Donald Trump, unquote. NBC News is reporting the Biden administration's considering expanding operations at the U.S. military base in prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to hold Haitians who are caught at sea trying to reach the United States. This comes as Haiti is facing a growing political and humanitarian crisis. In the 90s, the United States used Guantanamo to hold as many as 12,000 Haitians who fled Haiti following the U.S.-backed 1991 coup. In the Mediterranean, the Greek Coast Guard says they've found 11 survivors after a boat capsized in rough waters off the Greek coast. Dozens of others remain missing. The survivors are nationals of Egypt, Afghanistan and Iran. A separate search and rescue operation continues for another shipwreck, which had a dozen people on board. Four Palestinians have been rescued and one person was found dead. Fifteen Nobel literature laureates have signed on to a letter to world leaders ahead of this month's U.N. climate summit, asking them to, quote, devote parts of your agenda to the many thousands of political prisoners held in Egypt's prisons, most urgently the Egyptian-British writer and philosopher Al-Abdel Fattah, now six months into a hunger strike and at risk of death. The Nobel laureates are the majority of living Nobel laureates since 1986. Meanwhile, Egyptian authorities released Indian climate activist Ajit Rajagopal earlier this week after detaining him as he undertook a march for our planet on foot from Cairo to Sharm el-Sheikh, where COP27 will be held. This is Rajagopal describing his detention. I was kept there for hours and hours and the whole night. I was not—they were not informed me well what is the charge against me what are they going to do what should i how can i help them in the process nothing was being informed and even not even i didn't get any food from them as well even water as well an egyptian human rights group says at least 67 people have been arrested over the past week and a half as part of a crackdown ahead of the climate summit in Britain, campaigners with the group Just Stop Oil blocked the gates to Downing Street, home to the office and residence of the prime minister. Some glued their hands to the street during an act of civil disobedience Tuesday. A day earlier, activists sprayed orange paint onto four buildings in central London, the Bank of England, the Home Office, the MI5 Domestic Intelligence Agency and the headquarters of News Corp. The protests capped a month of action aimed at disrupting daily life to demand immediate action on the climate crisis. Criminal inaction, criminal inaction on the climate crisis. The UN say you need to act. The IPCC say you need to act. The IMF, the World Bank all say you need to act. And yet the government does nothing. What does it do? It issues new fossil fuel licenses. It says we need to drain every last drop of oil out of the North Sea. Back in the U.S. in Houston, Texas, 28-year-old rapper Takeoff was killed early Tuesday in a shooting outside of a bowling alley. His record label said he was the victim of a stray bullet. Takeoff, born Kirchnick Carryball, was one-third of Atlanta-based supergroup Migos, known for such hits as Versace and Bad and Bougie. There have been over 370 homicides in Houston in 2022. Early data suggest over 80 percent of these involve guns. 
In labor news, workers at a Starbucks Amazon Go store in New York City have filed a petition for a union election with Starbucks Workers United. Employees say they work two jobs but only get paid for one since they're both acting as barista for Starbucks and also stocking shelves and tracking inventory for Amazon's convenience store. Meanwhile, unionized workers at the Starbucks Roastery in New York City are in the second week of a strike over unsafe and unsanitary working conditions, including a bed bug infestation and mold in the ice machines. In related news, the National Labor Relations Board says Starbucks broke the law when it closed an Ithaca store in upstate New York as retaliation against unionizing workers. The NLRB says Starbucks should reopen the store and compensate workers for lost wages. And in Tulsa, Oklahoma, investigators searching for victims of the 1921 Greenwood Massacre have discovered another 17 bodies buried in a mass grave in a local cemetery. It's believed 300 African Americans were killed and 1,000 injured when a white mob descended upon and destroyed the black neighborhood known as Black Wall Street. None of the white supremacists were ever arrested in connection with the 1921 violence, which included aerial bombardment with dynamite and incendiaries on the 35-block community. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, as the Biden administration vows more military aid for Ukraine, we host a debate on the U.S. response to the war and U.S. policy toward Russia. We'll speak with Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst who specialized in the Soviet Union, as well as former Bernie Sanders advisor Matt Duss, a Ukrainian-American who's now a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Stay with us. by Stefania Turkowicz. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!, co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show looking at the war in Ukraine. Russia's announced it's rejoining a deal allowing for grain shipments from Ukraine's ports. This comes just four days after Russia withdrew from the deal, sparking fears it could worsen the global hunger crisis. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said the renewed deal would prioritize grain shipments to Somalia, Djibouti, Sudan and other African nations. Russia said it rejoined the deal after Ukraine agreed not to use the sea corridor to to attack Russian forces. 
Meanwhile, The New York Times is reporting senior Russian military leaders have had high-level discussions about how tactical weapons could be used in the war in Ukraine. That's tactical nuclear weapons. The article was based on unnamed U.S. officials who said they have seen no evidence that the Russians were moving nuclear weapons into place or making preparations for a nuclear strike. Last month, President Biden described the war in Ukraine as the first time the world has seen a direct threat of the use of a nuclear weapon since the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago. In a speech to Democratic donors, Biden said, quote, we're trying to figure out what is Putin's off-ramp. Well, today we host a debate on the U.S. response to Russia's invasion and U.S. policy toward Russia. We're joined by two guests. In Washington, D.C., we're joined by Matt Duss. He's foreign, former foreign policy adviser to Senator Bernie Sanders, a Ukrainian-American who's a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And in Raleigh, North Carolina, we're joined by Ray McGovern, former senior CIA analyst. His 27-year career as a CIA analyst includes serving as chief of Soviet foreign policy branch and daily briefer of the president's daily brief. At the time, it was George H.W. Bush. He's co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Welcome you both to Democracy Now!, Ray McGovern. Let's begin with you. Why don't you lay out what you think the U.S. policy should be toward Russia now and in dealing with the Ukraine war? Amy, I think we need to go back and figure out how this all started in order to figure out how to end it. In a word, uh, you quoted the new New York Times story this morning about uh, Russian tactical nuclear missiles and senior Russian military officials discussing this. Uh, the source uh, described by the New York Times was multiple U.S. officials. Now, I dare say they're the same multiple U.S. officials and some of the same authors of this piece that warned us seven times at the end of July in one article that there were sure to be weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I guess we have to say that the New York Times has lost its credibility on these issues, the more so since they do they back off the story themselves, saying Putin himself last week said this, there's no need for us to use tactical nuclear m missiles, and we never threatened to do so. And Putin happens to be right on that. Last thing I'll say here is that the notion that the Russians are desperate is erroneous. It's contrived. The Russians aren't losing. Uh, the Russians are not going to lose because they can't afford to. And when I say this, I mean that Putin sees an existential threat from not only Ukraine becoming part of NATO, but NATO using the emplacements for so-called anti-ballistic missiles in Romania and Poland already there to put in cruise missiles or to put in hypersonic missiles, which Putin himself warned last December would give him between seven and ten minutes or, if hypersonic missiles, five minutes to decide, in a word, whether to blow up the rest of the world. Now, Katrina Vandenhuvel said you know, in an op-ed just last week, you know, we have to empathize with anyone, even the hated 
Putin, even the hated Russians. And, you know, just thinking this through, and I'll close with this, uh, thinking about how, how many Americans hate Russia. I mean, hate is the word. And I think back to, to South Pacific. You know, you've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be fought oh dear to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught the Russians to hate in order to remain part of the fourth estate. You've got to... I made up the last two lines, okay? But that's what it is. In a word, we've had six years of unfounded hating Russians. I, I mentioned Russiagate. I think the press, the fourth estate, could do a real service by saying, hey, we were wrong about that. The Russians didn't hack into the DNC, and they didn't do all those other dastardly things that they were accused of. And let those 35 Russian diplomats come on back in. Let's talk to each other. Let's work this out. There's no reason why we can't make a deal. Uh, I'd like to bring in uh, Matt Doss on, on, on this issue. Matt, uh, as a, a foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders, uh, famously uh, an advocate for uh, peace, not war. Uh, what is your perspective on uh, on the uh, how this war would can end uh, and also the issue of how it uh, how it began? Right. I mean, well, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, I would say the easiest way for this war to end would be for Vladimir Putin to, to end his invasion um, and withdraw Russian troops from Ukrainian territory. Um, you know, as far as how this this war began, I mean, there's certainly a lot of a lot of things we could bring in um, to to describe. You know, the the, the d deteriorating U.S.-Russia relationship over the past decades and, and longer. Um, but just to focus on this issue of NATO, um, which was brought up just earlier, you know, certainly Vladimir Putin has brought up the concern about NATO. This is not something just he has brought up. Other Russian officials have brought it up in the past. Um, I think it's fair to, to, to say that some of the, the steps that were taken with regard to NATO could have been done differently. But this idea that Vladimir Putin had to wage this war because he sees an existential threat from NATO— I think has just been completely discredited by events. Let's let's remember, um, Finland and Sweden announced their decision to join NATO uh, some months ago. Finland shares an 800-mile border with Russia. Um, the response from the Russian government was basically, you know, no big deal. Um, I would suggest that if NATO was really uh, contributing to the sense of existential threat here, we might have seen um, a bit of a different response uh, to Finland joining NATO. And uh, I'd like to uh, ask you, Matt, in terms of that, though, clearly there is a there is a far different relationship between Ukraine and uh, and uh, Russia than there is between uh, Finland and Russia. Clearly, Russia historically sees Ukraine as the entry point to previous invasions and attack on its country, whether it's Napoleon uh, in the in the 19th century or uh, Hitler and the Nazis in the 20th century. Uh, your sense of, of Putin's view of the special relationship that has that has existed between Ukraine and, and Russia. No, I think that's very fair to bring up. Clearly, there's a, a very different historical relationship between Russia and, and Ukraine. Um, 
you know, and Putin himself has described his view of that relationship, which is that Ukrainians don't really exist. They are simply Russians. Um, certainly Ukrainians disagree with that. Uh, and I think um, most of the people in the world would disagree with that. Ukraine is um, a different country. Uh, Ukraine has a different culture, a, a different history. Certainly there are there is a, a re historical relationship uh, with Russia. But I think um, this also gets to what one of Putin's real goals here is, and that is not just to defend himself against the alleged threat from NATO encroachment, but it is to erase the Ukrainians as an independent political entity. Um, and I th think we see various steps that he is taking um, to make that vision real, including the uh, the kidnapping, essentially, of thousands of Ukrainian children, um, you know, transporting them into into Russia, uh, putting them with new families, a violation, a gross violation of international humanitarian law with regard to occupied territories. Um, so I think there's, you know, Putin himself has given us, I think, a much better understanding of his real goals and grievances um, in launching this war. I wanted to go to General Mike Mullen. In October, the former chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff appeared on ABC This Week calling for talks to end the war. It also speaks to the need, I think, to get to the table. I'm a little concerned about the language, uh, which uh, we're about at the top, if you President will. President Biden's language. President Biden's language, we're about at the top of uh, the language scale, if you will. Uh, so, and I think we need to back off that a little bit and do everything we possibly can to try to get to the table to resolve this thing. I wanted to get both of your responses on this, beginning with Matt Dust. You're the former foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders. Clearly, there is a major debate going on right now within the progressive community of elected officials in Congress. You had this letter that was released and withdrawn within a day that called for continued military support for Ukraine, but at the same time, pushing for negotiations, as we've seen Germany call for and mm. France call for. Um, and that was released, but withdrawn by Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We interviewed Congressmember Rokana. He said it shouldn't have been withdrawn. It should be the position. If you can explain why they would have withdrawn this, and you have Bernie Sanders himself. He's not a congressman, so he wouldn't have signed on to the letter. He's a senator. Um, but he uh, did say that um, he supported the withdrawal of the letter. He said, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has to be resisted, that the letter should have been withdrawn. He said, I don't agree with that. They don't agree with it, apparently, um, around the issue of urging President Biden to negotiate an end to the war with Vladimir Putin. Explain what this battle is about. And then I'd like to get Ray McGovern's response as well. Sure. I mean, a couple of things about the letter. One is, I think, in general terms, it is right to support diplomacy. I mean, it was as I've said, I said in a, in a recent interview with The New Yorker, um, you know, the United States is bringing its its superior military and intelligence capabilities to bear on Ukraine's behalf, um, I think, appropriately. Um, it is also appropriate for the United States to bring its superior diplomatic capabilities to bear on Ukraine's behalf. But I think the question here is when the time is right uh, for that high-level diplomacy. 
Um, you know, I think no one wants to, to, to see the United States, or I would say I don't want to see, and certainly um, many Americans and, and Ukrainians don't want to see the United States simply negotiating uh, the end to this war with Russia over the heads of Ukrainians. It is their country that has been invaded. Um, it, they're the ones who are, are fighting and dying to defend their country. Um, so I think this, this, you know, the, we want to avoid the impression that, it, that this is simply two great powers, you know, divvying up the spoils. Um, so I, I think that is part of the concern that you saw from even some of the signers of the letter, which I would, you know, just remind folks was actually written in, I believe, June and July and signed in June and July and then, then released um, with a little warning to some of the signers. So I don't want to get too into the details of that. Um, but I, I would agree that, you know, diplomacy is good. We, I think everyone understands that at some point, there will need to be a negotiation to bring this war to a close, but I think the tension um, within the progressive community comes to when and how that diplomacy actually takes place. Ray McGovern. Well, Amy, I was uh, distraught. It was scandalous that within 36 hours, those progressive Democrats tucked tail and gave up. I mean, the suggestion was eminently sensible. Who could be against talks? You know, there's an opportunity coming up where presidents are to meet in Bali, Indonesia. There would be an opportunity. Rose Guttermüller, who used to be Obama's czar in the State Department for Arms Control, has suggested that we start with these intermediate-range nuclear missiles and start to start to deal on a, a tactical level. But the notion that we shouldn't talk is, you know, I've just been focusing on the Cuban Missile Crisis of exactly 60 years ago. Now, how did that get resolved? By talks and by a modicum of trust. Let me explain. Kennedy took a very, very serious position, didn't he? He said, look, here's a quarantine. He called it a quarantine. It was really a blockade, illegal. Here's my invasion force in Key West, and here I'm going to threaten nuclear weapons. That's what he did. Khrushchev talked to him and said, well, look, okay, we, we didn't, we're going to back off, but we need something. And Kennedy said, okay, I promise not to, I promise not to invade Cuba. And Khrushchev said, OK, and on the side, they did this, did this little deal on Turkey. Now, that was because these were oral promises. These were negotiations by teletype in those days. But why we can't have that kind of thing now with people say, say you're giving in to the Russians is beyond me. With respect to the Finnish, let me just say a word about that. Uh, Matt only quoted the first part of Russia's response to the Finnish application to join NATO. What Putin said is, look, we've lived with the Finns for a lot of years. As long as no NATO infrastructure goes into Finland, we got no problem. What does that mean? NATO infrastructure are these little holes in the ground that can accommodate missiles like the Tomahawk and hypersonic missiles, which can reach Moscow five, six, seven minutes. That's what they're afraid of. And that's, that, that's what they consider to be their existential threat. Just a final word here, comparing the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Ukraine crisis. Now, did anyone say to Obama—I'm sorry—anybody say to John Kennedy, look, 
Mr. President, you're overreacting. This is unprovoked, all these measures you're taking, some of them illegal, blockade, all that. That's unprovoked. Did anybody say that? No. Why? Because it was, it was provoked. Now, putting missiles within five minutes, six minutes of Moscow or the ICBM force in the western part of Russia, that's provocation, folks. And Putin has been warning about that for seven, eight, nine years. John Mearsheimer, the dean of the Realistic School of uh, Political Science, said eight years ago that the crisis in Ukraine is the West's fault. He had used good evidence for that. There's lots more evidence now. He was right then, and he's right now. So what does that mean? That means we have to deal. We have to deal with the fact that Putin is in the same position that John Kennedy was 60 years ago. He sees an existential threat. He's not going to back off. He's going to do illegal things. And unless we understand that, and unless our administration believe, uh, gets used to the fact that I was a military intelligence officer, okay? If you look at the map, for God's sake, where's the enemy? Uh, what's the terrain? What's the weather? What's the weather going to be in the next couple of months? And most of all, what we call locks, not bagels and locks, but lines of communication and supply. I mean, Russia can't lose this, either militarily or politically. It's going to keep going as far as it has to. If HIMARS and the like comes in, it's going to have to go farther farther north and west, as uh, Lavrov, the Russian pharmacist, has said. It's a matter of geography. We would settle for the Donbass in southern Ukraine. If you're going to put in HIMARS or worse, geography will dictate that we go farther. So talks, of course, talks are necessary. And Talks are really labile, is the German word. They're very delicate because there's very little trust. There has to be a modicum of trust, as there was in 1962 on the Cuba Missile Crisis. I'd like to ask uh, uh, Matt and and possibly Ray also to respond to uh, the— Europe is suffering much more as a result of the continuation of this war, both in terms of its having to redirect its uh, its energy sources, uh, much higher inflation than exists here in the United States uh, right now. Uh, and uh, and to, there are some who view that Europe was dragged into this more by the United States in terms of the, the way it approached uh, uh, Russia and, uh, and Putin uh, in terms of Ukraine. Your your response uh, to that and how the and to whether there are differences between how Europe sees this war and the United States. I mean, I think there initially were. I mean, I think we we saw uh, the reports that U- European leaders were actually quite skeptical, um, as publicly were Ukrainian leaders of of the prospect of a Russian invasion. The United States um, continued to continued to say that the intelligence showed that Russia was preparing. Um, for an invasion, that the pieces were being moved into place for this invasion, and they turned out to be right. Um, you know, I mean, my, uh, Mr. McGovern earlier brought up the, um, you know, the, the the Iraq War WMDs debacle, and I think certainly the Biden administration is is quite aware of that record, and I think they have been very, very careful 
um, in, 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 in the importance of rebuilding uh, U.S. credibility when it comes to making these kinds of claims. And I think to their credit, um, the claims, you know, the intelligence that they have made public all along the way um, has, has, has been affirmed repeatedly. Um, now, with regard to the European position, I think there were a lot of European countries, particularly Germany, that had a vision of, of you know, much, you know, cooperation um, with Vladimir Putin, certainly on the issue of energy. Um, but I think uh, European leaders, based you know, on observing Putin's own behavior, um, have come around to the U.S. view um, that, you know, of the, the threat that Putin poses and what the problem, what this invasion of Ukraine could really mean, not just for Europe, but for the world. Certainly, they are the ones who are facing uh, much more immediate difficulty with re- regard to, to energy and, and, and food insecurity. Um, the Global South, uh, as, as Amy mentioned early on, um, with regard to the agreement um, over uh, over uh, grain export, this is a really good deal that's happening because certainly countries in in the, the in the global south are are bearing the brunt of this this global food crisis as well. Um, but just one last point here, with you know, my, uh, Mr. McGovern brought up you know John Mearsheimer's comment about this war being the U.S.'s fault. You know, I know John Mearsheimer. He is not, however, the Pope. Um, he has a view. Um, I think there are many eminent scholars who know Russia much better than John Mearsheimer does, who have a very different view um, of, of how we got here. Uh, so, again, I think those views should be taken into account. And I would point people once again to what Vladimir Putin himself has said is the reason for this invasion um, repeatedly, both in, in the written word and in speeches. And that, in, in part, is to reestablish what he believes to be Russia's historical rights, Russia's historical control of what he believes to be a kind of Russian imperium. Um, so that's not to say that, that diplomacy isn't necessary. Diplomacy is necessary. I believe there is diplomacy ongoing right now, perhaps not at the high level uh, that some would like to see. Um, but we, we know that, you know, the U.S. Uh, Defense Secretary Austin has um, a line open with uh, Russian Defense Minister Shoigu. Uh, they have talked multiple times. Um, there's also, you know, contacts and, and talks going on at lower levels. Um, you know, and I think these are the kinds of things that could lead to greater talks at higher levels um, at some time down the future. Um, but I think the disagreement um, is when when does that time come? When is it most appropriate? Uh, Ray McGovern, if you could respond. And also uh, this issue of the uh, of Europe and energy and Russia, the the blowing up of the Nord Stream uh, one and two pipelines, which uh, the 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 uh, Western press is remarkably uninterested in trying to investigate what actually happened there. And these ludicrous claims, in my view, uh, that Russia would blow up its own $10 billion uh, project of uh, supplying energy to uh, Europe. There you go, Juan. Uh, most Americans would be prepared to believe that. And I would submit that that's a direct result of six years' worth of brainwashing, okay? Now, uh, with respect to what Putin has said, uh, now, Matt is free to quote Putin, but not erroneously. Putin spelled out very precisely what the aims of that invasion was. He said it was a demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, Uh, There was no indication that he sent enough troops in there to take over Kiev. As a matter of fact, they've been very reluctant to to shell the cities until now, until many provocations have happened. 
So, so you know, you have to kind of really not do the what I call the Giuliani theorem. Uh, you recall what he said to that Arizona uh, legislator about corruption in the election. He, he's on a phone. He says, there's lots of corruption. Well, you got to look at it. It's, it's corrupt. And the legislator said, well, uh, oh, my God. Well, sure, we'll look at it. Uh, what's, what's the evidence? And Giuliani famously said, well, we have lots of theories, but no evidence. Now, I would suggest to Matt that he's got a nice theory there that Putin wants to take over Ukraine and that Putin wants to take over maybe the rest of the Europe, like uh, other people say. There's no evidence for that. Now, with respect to the West Germans, <laughs> the West Europeans, and particularly the Germans, I know the Germans real well. I spent five years there. Some of them are my best friends, all right? <laughs> but they are so subservient to the United States 77 years after the war that it's hard for me to believe they won't stand up on their own two feet when, and it's very clear to me, when the U.S. or its allies, U.K., blow up, <laughs> blow up Nord Stream 1 and 2. I mean, hello? So German industry is going to go, boom. German people are going to go, poof, okay, this, this winter. And German people... Will they ever, will they ever act any different than they did in 1933 and stand up on their own two legs and say, no, we're not going to abide by that? The Germans had the majority in 1933. There are a majority of German citizens who feel straight away that this is, un <laughs> this is unnecessary. And I dare say they may follow the Czechs and, and many of the others who, by the tens of thousands, are already in the streets. I just hope that they see their way to standing on their own two feet and saying, look, you know, we put up a lot of stuff, but when you blew up those pipelines, we're going to freeze. And also, our industry is going kaput. So would you lay off? We're going to stay on our own two feet. We're going to make a deal with the Russians. Now, there are reports that the Germans were already talking with the Russians about a deal on, on energy, on gas supplies, when those pipelines were broken, were, were sabotaged. So... You know, it's a, it's a real sad story in Europe. Uh, it's going to be sadder as the months go, go by. And not only that, but, you know, as the ice covers those fields in Ukraine, Russian forces are going to go forward. And uh, there is a hint in Putin's most le his latest uh, uh, speech that Odessa, okay, Odessa could be negotiated about. People ought to look at that. People ought to read his speeches. People ought to read through the Q&A. Now, if Odessa uh, can easily fall, after all, it's a Russian city, uh, if it can fall uh, to, um, to, the, to the Russians, well, maybe they'd be able to negotiate on that and say, look, uh, we'll make a deal here. Let's talk and let's work out something where we stop and Ukraine persists in a smaller way but uh, the, the war is over and Ukrainians stopped dying by the thousands. So let's get Matt Tess's response to that and also Juan's question about Nord Stream. Newsweek reported, speaking to reporters on February 7th, Biden said, if Russia invades, that means tanks or troops crossing the border of Ukraine again. There will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. Uh, 
we will bring an end to it, the president said. A journalist asked Biden how he could do that since Germany was in control of the project. The president replied, I promise you, we will be able to do it. So if you could talk about both Nord Stream and the rest of what Ray McGovern just said. Sure. I mean, just to address Nord Stream first, I think what the president clearly meant there was that Nord Stream 2 would not be brought online. It would not it would not the project would be halted. Um, I don't think that was a threat, you know, despite the, the tendency of some to try and interpret it as a threat that the United States would blow up Nord Stream 2. Um, and there's no evidence that the, the United States was, was responsible for that. As for some of these other claims about what Putin really wants, I, I, I feel like we're getting into just bizarre territory here. Um, to claim that Putin wasn't trying to take over Kyiv. Listen, the Russians landed strike teams outside Kyiv. Um, with the goal of toppling the Ukrainian government. These troops were not just there to go camping, okay? I mean, the plan clearly was to uh, land um, forces inside Kyiv to take control of the government. Um, clearly, Russia miscalculated. Um, they did not send enough troops. They did not have solid enough supply lines um, to, to support these troops. But then to turn around and point to Russia's poor planning as somehow evidence that Putin's goals were much much more modest, I, 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 I think is just untenable. Um, I did not claim that Putin wants to take over all of Europe. I pointed out that Putin himself claimed that he wanted to reestablish what he describes as Russia's historic right. Um, so I don't want to overstate that. But I do, again, uh, want to point people think to things that Putin has written and said about this, which give a good idea of his own goals. Well, we want to thank you both very much for joining us. There is a lot there. Uh, we want to thank Matt Duss, Ukrainian-American, visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, former foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders, and Ray McGovern, former senior CIA analyst. He's speaking to us from Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, Matt from Washington, D.C. Next up, with the midterm elections just days away, we speak with Mary Kay Henry, president of SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, about workers organizing on the job and at the ballot box. Stay with us. People have the power by Patti Smith. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. In the final days before Tuesday's midterm election, we look at how working people are organizing both on the job and at the ballot box. This is 32 BJSEIU member Lenore rallying members before heading out to canvas voters in New York. 
Some of you, it may be your first time out knocking on doors today, and why is a union involved in politics? How come the union's not just only worried about things that happen on our jobs? Because you know what the reality is? What happens in politics affects our jobs. Yes. the minimum wage. It helps us in bargaining. When we pass paid sick days, it helps us get more in bargaining. And so politics has an impact. The U.S. labor movement has gained traction in the past year with successful organizing drives at the first Amazon warehouse and Apple store, along with some 250 Starbucks stores and many others. Polls show more than 70 percent of Americans support labor unions. Democrats in Congress have proposed the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, known as the PRO Act, to make it easier for workers to unionize. The bill faces defeat if Republicans take control of the Senate. This is the Democratic candidate for a U.S. Senate in Wisconsin, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, talking to a roundtable of SEIU union members about his Republican opponent. Ron Johnson does not represent our interests. This is a person who, in our second debate, said that he doesn't see a reason to raise the minimum wage. Now, this is coming from one of the most wealthy people in our society, one of the most wealthy members of the United States Senate. He doesn't see a need for people's wages to increase, although his wealth doubled. In the last 12 years, his wealth has doubled and he is hell bent on making everybody else's life worse. For more, we're joined by Mary Kay Henry, international president of the Service Employees International Union, SEIU, which represents millions of workers in health care, public and property services. SEIU is campaigning to mobilize some four million infrequent voters of color in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, Georgia and Arizona. Mary Kay, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you talk about— um, why this midterm election is so crucial for organized labor and what you're doing about it. Because working people everywhere have had it. Uh, enough is enough. Uh, they were joining together to use their power uh, to take low-wage poverty jobs at Amazon warehouses and Starbucks stores and all the places you just mentioned and uh, joining together and demanding a union from their employer and demanding elected officials support them in the demand to tackle the worst economic and racial inequality in our time. And that's why I was proud to be with Mandela Barnes at that roundtable and then march all of the non-union workers that are organizing in Milwaukee with our members to the early vote site at the Pfizer Forum so that people could kick off uh, the early voting that's happening now in Milwaukee. Uh, and Mary Kay Henry, I wanted to ask you, one of the big issues uh, that Republicans use to attack Democrats is over immigration, claiming that Democrats are for uh, open borders uh, and, uh, and seeking to create uh, divisions within the working class over immigration. Uh, yet here we see, we see reports today that Canada uh, is dramatically increasing uh, its uh, uh, welcome mat for immigration because it feels it needs more workers uh, uh, in Canada. Uh, your sense of how the labor movement should deal with the attacks uh, on immigration from uh, the Republicans? Well, a key thing we're doing right now, one is motivating immigrant families to participate in getting their family, friends and neighbors in mixed status families out to vote. We're making sure that the issue of immigration is front and center, 
um, in this election, that roundtable that Mandela was part of uh, last week in Wisconsin. We had an immigrant worker talk about their experience and get him to commit to a fight for a full path to legalization for every immigrant in this country. And I think we have to continue to tell the stories of the immigrant workers that are holding up this economy and why it is necessary for us to have an immigration policy that's fair and humane. I wanted to ask you also about the long-term prospects for growth uh, in uh, in organized labor in the United States. There have been some who say that while the percentage of unionization of, of American workers has continued to drop dramatically, that many unions continue to have much better financial uh, positions, largely because over the years they've continued to increase dues uh, for their members. So they still are healthy financially, but many are not dedicating sufficient um, a percentage of their money uh, to organizing new workers. Uh, I think John Sweeney, when he first became head of the FLCIO, said it should be about 30 percent of unions uh, uh, revenue should be dedicated to organizing. How do you see that happening SEIU has been in the forefront of organizing, but some of the other unions uh, in the organized labor movement, their commitment uh, to uh, to organizing new workers and actually putting money uh, into those organizing drives. Well, I think there are some really encouraging developments on that front. Uh, CWA just made a huge breakthrough with Microsoft in the gaming division and got Microsoft on record as being willing to respect the rights of workers. So they've organized hundreds of workers in the gaming division and now the entire company. Uh, There are conversations happening. Uh, The UAW has pledged uh, a major campaign on electric vehicles because of the infrastructure money and the Inflation Reduction Act money. We're working in coalition with the um, Unite here and CWA on airport service workers. There's a million poverty wage black and brown workers laboring in our nation's airports after our nation just put billions of dollars and those uh, companies just posted record profits. We need the power of the labor movement to put a check on sort of runaway corporate profits at the hands of American uh, taxpayers. And then there's lots of great organizing that we're doing with the National Domestic Workers uh, Association in the home care and child care sectors in the economy. So I think the increased demand by working people for the ability to join together and bargain a better life on the job and in their community is going to get more Uh, unions investing in the ability and having workers' backs uh, to make that possible. About Starbucks, as reported in headlines, workers at Starbucks' Amazon Go store in New York City have filed a petition for a union election with Starbucks Workers United. There are 258 Starbucks uh, organized Starbucks stores today. There were none a year ago. And in related news, the National Labor Relations Board says Starbucks broke the law when it closed an Ithaca, New York store in retaliation against unionizing workers. The NLRB says Starbucks should reopen the store and compensate workers for lost wages. Now, Workers United, the Amazon union, is an affiliate of SEIU. Is that right? Uh, the Starbucks Workers United is an affiliate of SEIU? 
Yes. So can you respond to all of this latest news and the significance of the Starbucks organizing efforts? Yeah, I think the fearlessness and courage of these baristas to walk through the anti-union campaign that Starbucks has waged against them is incredible. And we are proud to have the backs of these baristas and to help expand the organizing in key states in the country because Starbucks needs to understand it may be 250 stores today, but it's going to be um, close to a thousand in a couple of months. And they have to make a choice. Are they going to respect the workers uh, voice on the job and come to their senses and set a national bargaining table with these workers? Or are they going to force fight after fight in store after store in state after state? And this is a choice that Starbucks has answered yes to in other parts of the world. And they need to do it here in the United States of America. And Mary Kay Henry, in terms of the uh, upcoming election, uh, there are obviously many American workers uh, who still, who basically see both parties, uh, Democrats and Republicans, as captured by, by corporate elites. Uh, how does the labor movement deal with the fact that there are, within the Democratic Party, uh, so, many, uh, uh, so many corporate elites who want to constantly uh, move the party in a more centrist direction, uh, and therefore uh, uh, create the possibility for disaffected workers uh, to uh, be uh, recruited into the Republican Party or uh, in support of Republican candidates? Well, I think a key way we do that is we put our members and uh, organizing workers on the front lines of endorsing candidates and forcing candidates to look our members in the eye and talk about what they're going to do to uproot systemic racism and confront corporate power in the economy and in our democracy. And when we do that, um, we get candidates that are willing to fight with us, like Mandela Barnes in um, Wisconsin, Governor Sisolak in Nevada just pledged to raise $15 Uh, wages for our home care members and raise the reimbursement weight and help us organize 14,000 home care workers in that state. Those are indications of candidates that are willing uh, to pick a side. And that's been one of the battle cries that our members and organizing leaders have had throughout this midterm election, which is which side are you on? We have got to make our votes a demand and not a show of support for candidates that are with us one day and against us the next. It is critical that working people uh, root out that uh, corporate Democrat in this party and force our candidates to represent the vast majority of working people in this country. Mary Kay Henry, minimum wage increases are on the ballot in Nebraska, in Nevada, Washington, D.C. Two California cities in Southern California will vote on whether to raise the base wage for nurses to $25 an hour. In Illinois, voters will choose whether to include the right to collectively bargain in the state constitution. So it's not just voting for candidates. It's voting on issues like these around the country when people go to the polls. If you could comment on this and on Bernie Sanders' criticism of the Democratic Party and candidates for not focusing more on what the Democratic Party can do for workers. I think the minimum wage um, 
efforts all around the cities and states that you just described is a huge step forward and is part of the win that the Fight for 15 and union movement created in raising wages and putting wages um, as part of the conversation uh, in this country. We fully back uh, all those efforts. And I think you're right. It is a way to put the economy and wages and work at the center of our politics and make sure that people understand that what we've been hearing on the doors from those 4 million infrequent voters and from our 2 million members and the millions more that we're trying to organize is that cost of living is their number one issue. And they need candidates to tackle price gouging corporations that have profiteered off this pandemic and hold them accountable, especially when they get taxpayer dollars to create good jobs. They need to be good union jobs. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Mary Kay Henry is the international president of the Service Employees International Union, SEIU. That does it for our show on uh, November 8th on election night. Democracy Now! will be um, airing a three-hour election night special. We'll be broadcasting live starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. You can go to our website at democracynow.org for more details. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.